We ask, Almighty God, that you would aid us in our study of this passage this morning. We ask that you would give us more of your Holy Spirit, that we might look upon this passage and be enlightened by it, that we might be illuminated by your Spirit, that we might see Christ more clearly, that as your servant Abraham did, we might do. Aid us as we look at this chapter. Strengthen us by the power of your Spirit and give us wisdom based on the knowledge that we receive from this text. We ask for your help in this this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking at Genesis chapter 21, verses 22 to 34. Let's read this, follow along, 22 to 34 in Genesis 21. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water, which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. The two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant of Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a terebinth tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines, Many days. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. We find here part two of what we began last week. Last week we had talked about making a, or taking a reaction to God's word, uh, Abimelech's dealing with Abraham in that day and God coming to him and all that transpired. Here we see part two, where taking God seriously in his word extends to praising him or the praise that is due him. The proper response of the servant of God is proper praise, one of which we are often neglectful. Abimelech, he praised Abraham and Abraham's God and rebuked Abraham. The setting is at that time. It's the time of the birth and expulsion of Hagar and Ishmael, which we just recently went over. And Abimelech came to him, God is with you in all that you do, or... Literally, he is the cause of all your blessing. 
Abraham is a formidable presence in the land. Fecal comes with the king, the commander of his army. And Abraham is to be reckoned with, and so peace talks take place. Abimelech makes a rebuke and a petition that Abraham does not deal falsely with him. That is a rebuke from the last time that Abraham had dealt with Abimelech, and he did deal falsely with him, lying about his wife. Here, Abimelech rebukes him in saying that he wants him to deal well with him. God had dealt with Abimelech even when Abraham sinned. God is truly with Abraham in all he does. Nor should he deal falsely with his offspring or posterity. Not only does Abimelech want good dealings with Abraham, but he wants his children to as well, as long as he is there. He makes the illusion that Abraham is dwelling in the land, but doesn't contest it at all. And Abraham agrees with him and says, I'll swear, I won't deal falsely with you. Then the second cycle here is Abraham's rebuke and then their covenant oath. He makes a covenant oath with Abimelech. The tables turn and Abraham rebukes Abimelech for dealing falsely with him. The servants had seized his well by force for their own and it was his well. And so Abimelech pleased with Abraham as he did with God about being innocent of this in the same manner. And if he had known he would have stopped it. Probably a bit of fear set in because he knew exactly what had happened the last time and God told him that he would be judged for the result and God would come against him. So resolution is seen by the oath of the covenant that they make together. Not only do men make covenants with God or God makes covenants with them, but also they make covenants with one another. To cut, to make a pact or agreement, is as if it would be done to them. So, with Abraham and Abimelech, to cut these sacrifices are to demonstrate that if they don't uphold their end of the bargain, the pact or agreement, what has been done to these animals shall be done to them. Abraham furthers the gesture by even redeeming back the well with seven ewe lambs. Abimelech wants to know why Abraham is doing him this favor. That the well is Abraham's. He wants to demonstrate his kindness. The name Beersheba means well of the oath or well of the seven in response to the land. And there's a witness there for Abraham in case there's any further conflict. That takes place. So the resolution takes and Abimelech and Fecal leave after the oath. And then there is Abraham's response to this whole situation and it's twofold. And it's worship to God. Verses 33 to 34. One is a private symbolic response and the other is a public open response. The private response is planting of the tree. The tree must be tended in this land, and so it is a petition to God, a hidden prayer for protection, for care. The tree will have to be watered each day because of its terrain. Abraham will have to take care of it. God, in that manner, must take care of Abraham. 
there's also an outward response. And the outward response is the gratitude given back to God in public worship because God was the real cause behind this prosperity. A wife, a son, a promise revealed, and peace with his neighbors. All of these things God had provided for him. And so he stays or dwells, sojourns in this place for many years. Not a literal staying, but a dwelling temporarily. That's our text. It's a short text, but what I want to pull out of this text is that prosperity brings reliance and reverence. Prosperity brings reliance and reverence. Abraham could have given himself the glory because of the oath that he made with Abimelech. He did it, he rebuked him, he gave him the ewe lambs and etc. But in reality, he has no right to do so. When prosperity graces the servant of God, they should continually acknowledge that God has brought it. Many people will say, well, we do. But is this really the case? Look to Solomon. He was graced by God with extravagant prosperity and later sinned against God by breaking every commandment which God had given for kings. He became lazy in his prosperity instead of grateful. Because of what God had done, Abraham acknowledged God through private and public worship. The tree would be a constant reminder that God constantly watches over him. The portion of land was dry, and the tree would have to be tended daily. That is why Abraham rebuked Abimelech for stealing the well. And the public worship would be a constant reminder for the whole camp that God had brought such blessing to Abraham and his people. And he calls upon El Olam, the everlasting God, or the God of eternity. God cannot fail, because he is eternal. He has no short arm. He continually, constantly, in the everlasting manner of his very nature, upholds and blesses his servants. Thus, Christians should be more grateful than pagans. Sometimes we see or hear the lost give praise to God, even before saved people do. Look to Abimelech here. He acknowledged that God had done all this for Abraham. God is with you in all that you do. Christians should never let the lost beat them to acknowledge the praise which is due God for his work among us. At work, we might hear it. God's blessing you coming from the mouth of those who are not saved. Psalm 29, verse 2. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Everything that God does for his servants should be a blessing to them. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Psalm 96, 8. As lost and blind as people are, they are not so lost that they cannot see what God is doing. They cannot see the grace and prosperity which God lavishes upon a Christian. That is the reason why the lost hate 
Christians because they see sometimes the prosperity in the Christian life. And the Christian gives God all the glory and relies on him instead of relying on their own strength on themselves. Cursed is the one who trusts in man and depends on his flesh for his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord, as Jeremiah said. What was Abimelech thinking? He knew that God had blessed Abraham. God is with you in all that you do. God has blessed you. Thus, Christians should worship most joyfully in times of prosperity and peace. It's somewhat interesting because when prosperity comes, we think, oh, well, it's easy to worship God at that time. It's easy to be joyful at that time. It's hard to be joyful in times when prosperity isn't here or when difficult things happen. Yet, for a great number of Christians, this is not necessarily the case because the prosperity that God brings causes them to become lazy in their acknowledgement of that which is easy to do. Sometimes Christians use their children as excuses not to be able to come to church because their children are just too much work to get them ready in the morning. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It's a blessing to them. Sometimes prosperity brings people into a prayerless complacency. Nothing is wrong, so they tend to let prayer go. Many Christians think that church is just a place where you go to meet God when things get rough. But Paul tells us, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice, Philippians 4.4. 4. Christians might not see God doing too much. Seems to be a sign of inactivity on God's part. And that is just not true. God brings us seasons of peace. He gives us seasons of prosperity. He gives us rest for Christians who are traveling upon the road of salvation. Listen to this little excerpt from Pilgrim's Progress. I looked for Christian and saw him going up the hill of difficulty. I could see his pace slow from running to walking and then from walking to crawling on his hands and knees because the hill was so steep. Now about halfway up the hill was Pleasant Arbor, a resting place made by the Lord of the hill to refresh weary travelers. When Christian got there, he sat down to rest. Now as Bunyan comments on this, it is what he says, a refuge of grace. Sometimes there is peace. Sometimes there is prosperity. We must see that in times of peace and prosperity, God is working the hardest of all. For the world is a place which hates us. And for us to enjoy a time of peace is certainly a God-given blessing. Regularly, Jesus says that in the world we would face much tribulation. That is a promise. So, when we are traveling the hill of difficulty and we find the place of rest, Christians should worship most joyfully in times of prosperity and peace, knowing that such times are far and few between. In looking at this particular doctrine of worshiping God in these prosperous and peaceful times, and knowing our complacency often in such things, we have to ask the question, in applying this to ourselves, is there a reliance on Christ when things are good? Do we seek him more? 
It should be a time for us when we see Christ more. We have rest. We have peace. It is hard enough to gain grace when things are in great turmoil, but in times of peace and prosperity in our lives, we show leaps and bounds because of our hunger and desire to know the eternal Christ all the more. Is that what we say? Is that what we do? Times of ease should make prayer and worship and devotions and the like far more often and filled with exceeding joy because there is more of a freedom to worship. Your mind is not burdened with the trials and tribulation. And so you have all the more strength to devote to him. Abraham was in a place that was dry and desolate, but fed off of God. He planted a tree that he was going to have to tend every day because of the kind of terrain it was and the kind of tree it was. And yet, as a result, demonstrating his faithfulness to God in a time that God was giving him peace and prosperity in covenant with even the pagans of the day who came and visited him. Some might say, but I have yet to experience this. My life is consistently and constantly in turmoil and in difficulty. And this is true. It may be. Christian and Hopeful continued on their way until they came to a lovely plain called Ease. They were happy to travel there. But the plain was small, and they passed through it quickly. The ease that pilgrims have is but little in this life. So this is a warrant to be watchful, so that when the easy time comes, when the time of prosperity reaches us, we enjoy it all the more. We take advantage of it. It's easy. It gives us a time of respite. It gives us a time of rest. And thus, we even have to ask ourselves, are we more joyful than the lost? It's true that Christians should be far more joyful than the lost. No matter how bad things are, our spiritual life as redeemed is far better than the temporary life of the movie star, the one who's in the glitter and the glamour. Oh, so-and-so has millions of dollars. I wish to be like them and want to be well off. And so... We compliment the lost. But what a tragedy that really is. We dream of having the lifestyle of the rich and famous, but in doing so, we talk in contempt of Christ, who has so ordained our lives as they stand. May we say with David, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 84. If we are not more joyful than the lost and think simply that material things will cause us to be joyful, we are in a far worse shape. But ask yourself, when is your worship of God most powerful? Is it when you need something from God that you labor painstakingly before the throne of grace for hours? Many do this. They weep, they wail when trials come so that they receive relief. But what about how you act in times of prosperity? How long do you labor in prayer, in worship, in devotions when things are well with you? All of us must call in the name of the everlasting God when things are well. 
even more than when things are in trial. Our worship should be most powerful when we're most free to worship. It should be most powerful when it's unhindered by the problems and the troubles of the world. Assess your life. How big are your problems and your troubles? In visiting Peru, I saw problems and troubles in the very poor places in most of the country, living in cardboard boxes as far as the eye can see. How troubled are you really? How hindered are you in your problems? The fountain of all peace and prosperity is the everlasting God. It's Christ. Whether a person is a pagan or a Christian, they should worship God. It's what he requires. Yet, whether you're a pagan or a Christian, people will worship what they most love. And that also gives warrant to how much you love whatever you love. Those who are lost will love themselves and remain in self-love more than they love God. But to join the fountain of the Christian is to be Christ. What he loves most. What he is. How Abraham praised God in the time of prosperity and peace. The ruler of his land came with a military escort to make a peace treaty with him. Because the Lord worked that. And so peace was around him in the land which he dwelled. And Abraham was rescued from earthly travail for a time, and he was given temporary peace for a time and praised God. That was his response. Privately and publicly, he did so. How much more do Christians have the obligation and commitment to praise Jesus Christ? Christ does not only give temporary blessings, but eternal spiritual blessings. The imputation, simply the imputation of his work upon us and our removal of wrath by his work. Now that is true peace and prosperity. Why we come and hear the message, why we come to worship, why we come to fellowship, why we have church is all because of what Jesus Christ has done. He redeemed us from the bondage of sin through his death and resurrection. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he left captivity captive and gave gifts to men. That's you and that's me. On your birthday, it's customary to receive gifts. As children ask you for things you saw in the toy store, on TV, the newest and the best, but how did you feel right now about the weevils that you received? So long ago. How do you feel about the Fisher-Price airport now? How do you feel about the size one pants that you had when you were seven? Or the dress that you received for your eighth birthday now? How do you feel about them now? Well, if they were really eternal, you would not ask. Because you would know. Temporary gifts, though... Fade. Temporary gifts fade into nothingness. The Fisher Price airport and the dress and the pants and all of these things fade. They fade quickly. Even the things that you got last year for your birthday or during Christmas time or during some special occasion, you probably can't even remember 
what you received before. They fade. But peace and prosperity of the soul never fades because Christ gives us gifts which last forever. And the peace and prosperity that we have in that is what we are to react to consistently. If we neglect the worship that's doing in times of prosperity, we're setting contempt upon the work which he has accomplished for us. Christ calls us to repent of that. We are much like the church of Ephesus, who had lost the love of Christ. Or like the church of Laodicea, who says she is without need. She's rich. But in truth, as Christ says, you don't know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so Christ exhorts them, remember your first love. And exhorts them, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see. He's talking to Christians. He's not talking to lost people. Christians need to see the need to respond in praise to him. There is praise to his name. That your laziness is robbing from him. You are robbing Christ of his due. And we must repent of that. And those who are lost, they're even far worse off. Not only do they not praise Christ, which is his due, but they despise his work and they hate him. Abraham, though, knew his peace and prosperity was short. He knew that God had promised his ancestors would spend 400 years in Egypt under hard bondage. God had already told him that. So what did he do? Privately, he planted a tree. He worshipped before God. Publicly, he worshipped before the face of men and gave God the recognition that was due him. Reaction to God's word. Reaction to God's actions. Giving God the praise that's due his name. Abraham took God seriously when God specifically spoke to him about casting out the bondwoman and listening to his wife for what his wife said was true. And here, in this counterpart passage, he takes God seriously in his word again. But this time it's a bit different. This time it's based on analysis. It's based on everything that God had done for him. And in response of seeing all of the blessings, all of the wonderful things that God had done for him, in taking God's word seriously, he praised God and gave him the praise that was due his name. Thus, at no point in the Christian life, in any way, especially for we wealthy Americans, we don't live in a box, we're not hard up for food, we have jobs, we have peace, we're not persecuted, not really, we're not laying down as many of the Chinese are on the ground in a park with their families, where the government says to them, recant of your Christianity. 
And they say no. And so they drive over them with a steamroller, one by one. We're not persecuted like that. We're not persecuted where they're hiding in their houses and the police break forth and break in and see them in Bible study and tell them to spit on the Bible lest we shoot you in your head. And they don't. And so they're shot and killed. In one group, this young girl watched as the others spit on the Bible. And when it came turn for her, she wiped it off. And they shot her in the head. We're not persecuted that way here in America. We have to go to other places to see such things. What right then, at any point, at any time, do we ever have any kind of right to be not joyful, not rejoicing, not giving God praise? That's due Him for all that He's done in placing our borders where we live here in this place. He has so orchestrated everything that we have reaped the benefit of the prosperity that God has so lavished upon us. We live in the top 10% of anyone on the planet. What cause do we have to be upset with our circumstance and upset with God's providence in setting up these borders for us? Where we live in our house, where we live in our city, the jobs that we have, the food we have, the luxuries that we have. Abraham was a rich man. Abraham had lots of money. Abraham had lots of possessions. Abraham had lots of servants. And his response in taking God seriously was that he praised him publicly and privately. Do we do the same? Let's pray and ask that the Lord would help us in this. Mighty God and everlasting Father, we come before you needing to repent of our laziness or repent of our attitudes and ask that you would forgive us for not being joyful, for not being the ones like Abraham who gave you praise because we take your word seriously, knowing full well that you have ordained all that you have given us. You've given us a time of peace, a time of prosperity in our lives. We may be dealing with difficult things here or there, but we are not under great persecution, Lord, in a way in which would cause us to neglect praising you as we should. And in this time of peace and prosperity, we ask that you would aid us and strengthen us and help us that we might love you and give you praise that's due your name, that we might take your word seriously, not only as we hear your commands, but how we see your great providence all around us and all that you do for us and how you've blessed us. We ask, Lord, that you would aid us to commit ourselves to you and consecrate ourselves to you, being thankful, demonstrating how we should be thinking about our lives, 
our worship, our very existence before the eternal God who constantly blesses us with good things. We ask that you would help us not to turn a blind eye to them and rather see them clearly. Give us more of your spirit that we might honor Christ in that way, seeing his benefits clearly. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.